Hey everyone, I'm Andy Petronic, and this is the Whole Life Challenge Podcast. It's the place we talk to exceptional people about the things that make them tick, exploring their life successes, lessons learned, daily habits and secrets, what helped them to get where they are, and how they stay on top of their game. All right, welcome back, folks. It's Andy, and we've got another podcast for you today. Um, I talk with Dr. Andrew Hill today. Dr. Hill, oh, I call him Andrew in the podcast, runs a place called the Peak Brain Institute in Culver City, California. It happens to be very close to my house. And the way the way I describe what he does and what, what Peak Brain is, it's kind of like a gym for your brain. And um, up until the point, up until going there and looking at the 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 type the type of training the neural training that he does I, I didn't really even know that this world existed um and i don't know the best way to really describe the process because i haven't gone through the process yet the the deal was for the podcast that i would come in and do a an analysis a, a basic brain analysis of kind of what's going on in my brain I had no idea what that even meant. Um, when I showed up for the interview, they they put this um, device on my head with like 24 different, um, I don't know, probes. And they sat me in a semi-dark room and said, okay, you're going to sit there without saying anything or doing anything and being as relaxed as possible, but allowing your brain to think as much as it wants to think about whatever it wants to think about with your eyes open. You're going to do that for five minutes and then you're going to do the same thing with your eyes closed for five minutes. Okay. Seemed like reasonable. I wasn't allowed to meditate. Um, and then I had to do another excruciatingly boring exercise where I was answering basically yes, no questions to na nauseatingly. It was like 20 minutes of nauseatingly boring questions. And he warned me in advance it was going to be nauseatingly boring. But this was all in an effort to to go through the the basic cognitive tests that he runs on any anybody that comes to see him the first time. And again, I, I really didn't know what I was going to get. Um, I wasn't there for any particular reason. Nothing's not working the way I want it to work. Um, I was recommended to go to see Dr. Hill from uh, Brian McKinsey. And um, boy talking about some interesting results. He, uh, he, he took me aside before we got into the podcast recording and said, you know, and Andy, I'm, I'm seeing some interesting things on your, the preliminary view of your brain. Do you want me to be fully honest in the podcast? Do you want me to, you know, lay it all out like for you? I'm like, yeah, I mean, of course. Well, that's why I'm here. Um, he's like, cause you know, it might be some things you don't want to share publicly with people. I'm like, really? <laughs> So then my, uh, my interest was highly peaked and, um, I'm not going to let you in on what, what we talked about, what, what he found. Um, I'm effed up. <laughs> I mean, the good, the, that's bad news and good news. The good news is my life's pretty good. So if there are that many things that I can work on improving, then I looked at as, I look at that as a serious opportunity. Um, I made a deal with him afterwards that I was going to train for at least a month and come back in uh, three days a week 
to do, I think it's 20 to 40 minutes of training each day on neural feedback. And I, I, I wish I could describe it a little bit better. Bio, it's biofeedback, it's mindfulness, um, quanti, quantitative EEG, um, and see what happens. See if I actually notice a difference. Because, you know, there's one, one thing is seeing a difference in the EEG brain map. Another is feeling a difference in my life. And if I don't feel a difference in my life, then who really cares? So um, without further ado, I think it's probably best to bring in Dr. Hill and he will explain what's going on, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how effed up I find that I am. And, you know, he actually provides for me quite a bit of, of, of hope in that these things are modifiable, changeable. Um, I should probably mention too that some of the things that some of the conditions that he works with people on are insomnia, um, PTSD, um, unable to get back to sleep after being asleep, uh, stress, fatigue, um, really any of the modern day conditions that, that we find ourselves um, coping with. And he, 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 he works with people on this stuff from the standpoint of the, the, physical, the physical nature of the brain, not what's underneath it, not the emotional stuff, not the um, conscious stuff, but these are, these are, this is subconscious behavior that your brain exhibits. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, really a, it's really a cool area that I, that I, like I said, I didn't even really even knew existed. So um, you'll probably learn a lot from this podcast, um, and uh, I certainly did, and enjoy it. It's about an hour deep of deep conversation. I will be back and sh be sharing my results of my training in a, in a future podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that as well. So uh, without further ado, Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Andrew Hill. Dr. Andrew Hill, welcome to Thanks, the podcast. Andy. Appreciate it. Um, I am so intrigued by what I've done this morning. Um, <laughs> it, it, um, you came out and so let me, let me just catch everybody up. Yeah. So we're at the Peak Brain Institute in Culver City. Yep. And I was told that I needed to meet Andrew. Can I call you Andrew? Sure, or Dr. Andrew, Dr. And, Andrew, Andrew or Dr. Fine. Hill? Or yeah, Andrew's Andrew. fine. Okay. So uh, Brian McKenzie made oh, sure. a very big reference to you and the program and I needed to get here and there were like three people. Like it's, you uh -huh. know how, how you, like suddenly one person says something and then like it shows up in three different places. Sure, sure. And your office happens to be literally right down the street from the shopping center. We go to Blaze Pizza all the time. We oh, go to great. Chipotle all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. We're literally, I mean, I could bike, ride my bike here in like three minutes. That's great. So No excuse not to no, be here. I had yeah, no idea yeah. that you were, that such a resource was so close to my house. That's great. Um, so um, you you invited me to come in, not just for the podcast, but to come in and get a sampling of what you do. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise a, I have no brain idea. map yeah, to start right. with. Yeah. And uh, so I came in last week to do the brain map and I hadn't received the, the, the email to give me these very specific instructions. So I walk in the door. My hair was wet Gelled mess. Up, yeah, well, yeah, wet mess. Yeah. Well, it wasn't wasn't gel. I used oil in my hair. Oh, okay, so it was, oil. Right. It was, it was yeah, wet, yeah. and and then I just had a nice big cup of coffee. And you're like, you haven't uh, you you washed your hair and dried it before you came here, right? And I'm like, no, no. Yeah. Uh, you avoided coffee before you came here, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> So we had to reschedule for today. Well, thankfully, it wasn't like traveling across the country to come in for a match. Right, so, you right, know. right. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um. So I came back today. I shampooed my hair, which I don't normally do. 
Um, uh, which is kind of a thing that I talk about on a, mm-hmm. on a mm-hmm. you know, I've been on this no poo thing for quite some time. I use, I use coconut oil. I use vinegar. Um, and, uh, it's pretty rare. I, whenever, whenever I get my hair cut, I, they shampoo it. So probably once a month, I, yeah, my, yeah. Sh- my hair gets shampooed. Um, so it was a special occasion last night just for my, <laughs> my, my, my show up this morning. And, um, so we did the my, we did a uh, yeah a quantitative EEG a brain map or a QEEG <clears throat> yeah they put this thing on my head I'll I'll post post some pictures in the blog post uh, my mom my mom is here and she took some pictures and accidentally held her thumb down on the thing and took like eighty seven burst photos oh, of great. this mind map thing but it's it's pretty it's this hoodie hood like thing with. I don't know. What are they called? Those little electrodes, electrodes um, that are touching yeah, your head. That's actually an active amplifier, which means you actually have 24 little amplifiers in one device. So usually we have uh, flat metal wires we stick to your head. Those mm-hmm. are passive wires measuring electricity at your scalp. These are active wires, meaning that every little cluster of wires has an EEG amplifier right against your scalp. And okay. by doing that, as, as you know, this was a dry cap, so we didn't have to put any gel or goop in your hair because we're using this really high-end dry system and Mm. if somebody has an average sized head we can do that we can use a completely dry system and the start to finish time for the for the brain map data gathering was about 20 minutes right you know Uh, it was a wet cap you probably add half an hour to that as we gel up 24 locations and get them to seat properly so it was it was good we were able to use the dry cap for you that'd be a reason for me to shave my head again so there you uh, go Uh, and then we did a very nauseatingly boring test <laughs> with ones and yep. twos and audi- aud- auditory and visual and uh, so I'm so so basically this is a preamble. He hasn't really shared with me. He gave me a little heads up yeah. before we came to this room. Like I see some significant uh, results, and he's like, "How honest do you want me to be?" I'm like, "Give it yeah, all. Give how, it to, how much to bear your brain? On, give it all. On the, on give, the air, give, yeah. give my brain. Like tell me everything, all the good, all the bad, and maybe there's no good." Um, cause I'm now I'm starting to maybe think I've got some excuses for why I'm as effed up as I am. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> sure. Great. I'll, I'll, I'll so I can go it. back to my wife and say, look, honey, I can't help it. My brain is just effed. <laughs> there, there, there are a few unique things about your brain. Your wife probably wants to know. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, so, so we should jump into it. Yeah, let's jump Great. into it. So, so we're looking at a little laptop. He's got the results of my these are my. This is my. This brain, is right? your brain. Yeah. So these are these are delta and alpha waves showing excess. Okay. Um, and this is eyes closed. Now I should start saying uh, the the behavioral test we had you do is uh, what's called a CPT, a continuous performance task, and that is um, as you said very boring. And the point of the CPT is to get you to essentially make mistakes, and we examine if the mistakes are spacing out mistakes, not responding, or failure to inhibit mistakes where you're impulsive and you respond too much. And then we give you stimuli that are auditory and visual and try to figure out of all those axes, is there one specific area that's different than the rest? And for you, there were. I mean, you were, you were, you were, you were quite uh, average or above average in everything except responding to auditory cues, at which point you were ridiculously impulsive. So you had really a hard time not responding to any auditory input, even when it wasn't the right input. And so this would suggest there's already a little bit of impulsivity or over-responding, if you will, in the way your mind works, your brain works. And then the the physiology data, the the brain map we did, um, the first thing we look at are slow brain waves called theta and alpha. Mm -hmm. Um, And when those are excessive, when those are more, you make more of those than the comparison population, I I should back up, the QEEG process is not neuroimaging, it's statistics. 
So we aren't looking at your brain going, aha, Andy has this brain thing going on. We're going, you know, Andy's brain's different from about 4,000 people I compared him to in a bunch of interesting ways. And the 4,000 people that mm-hmm. you compared me to, how do you pick those people? Who are, who are, that who is are a commercial they? database of heavily oh. screened people. So no head injuries, no psychiatric meds, no diagnoses of any sort, uh, no caffeine in their system, no shampoo or coconut oil in their hair. Um, <laughs> but they're uh, essentially a heavily screened normative database. Okay. And I use multiple databases when doing comparisons. One is a normative database. I also use a traumatic brain injury comparison database hmm. that I think has around 2,800 people in it that have had uh, mostly mild and closed head injuries. So we're not looking at like structural, like big damage. We're looking at alterations in connectivity and the sort of shearing damage that happens for most types of head injuries, closed head injuries. Okay. And so I compared you to a normal population, eyes open, eyes closed. I also compared you to a traumatic brain injury population. So those are both the two normative databases. Well, one's normative, one's a TBI. And is that the, is that the standard thing you do when somebody comes in here yeah. for a CU? That's what you do? Yeah, that, like, this, that is the clinical process of QEEG, Quantitative EEG is a population compared baseline read. And so we figure out, you know, oh, you're interesting. You're different from typical in this way, this way, and this way. And then we often can uh, say, you know, this, this way in which you're unusual often means this. Is that true for you? Oh, it is. Great. Let's believe that. And we go through the statistical sort of outliers and the things that are most unusual, we can probably attribute to certain, you know, functional limits or mm-hmm. processes you're working with. And if we can, if I say, you know, this pattern might mean X, Y, or Z, and you say, no, that, that isn't true, then we assume it's a normal variant for your brain. We don't assume there's a problem just because you're different. I mean, right, clearly right. You're, a, you're a unique guy. You're a special <laughs> snowflake. Um, but just because you're different doesn't I'd mean something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, yes. You're a, you're a special snowflake, Andy. Um, now, can we, well, let's, let me yeah. back up just a little bit because um, I don't really know your mm-hmm. background. I've, sure. I've read a little bit on your little pamphlet and whatnot. But um, <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about like how did you get here and yeah. just a quick uh, Reader's Digest so we can get into the... the Certainly. Business. So uh, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist at all. So my job or my the, the, the space in which I work is the intersection of mind and brain and I'm very concerned or very focused on but isn't the mind and your brain the same thing you mean the physical brain versus the mind which is the the thing that's out there I I sort of define the brain that the I define the mind as the part of the brain we're aware of okay the part your, your awareness. The part we're thinking with, the part we're perceiving yeah. with, all the conscious stuff of the brain is what I call the mind, all, all okay. the aware stuff. Um, but yes, I'm... I'm the brain I, is a physical... Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a reductionist, so for me, the brain is the mind. Um, but the mind has, you know, the mind is using some parts of the brain, but there's also many involuntary, non-conscious, non-cognitive parts of the brain. Okay. Um, essentially, the cortex, the bark on top of the brain, is the part in which we largely think. And we also perceive and do motor output and other things with the cortex, but deeper structures um, are much less about thought and more about running the body, um, um, maybe keeping emotions going or learning or other sort of really core low-level things. Mm -hmm. But in terms of thought, it's we think to some extent, no pun intended, it's largely a cortical or a surface phenomenon of the brain. And the process of EEG biofeedback or neurofeedback or even QEEG is measuring those resting patterns on the scalp, uh, which are a proxy for information on the cortex. And then we look at those patterns and try to figure out you know, what might be true about your mind or your other regulatory sort of features. But yeah, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, so I got a PhD in 2012 from UCLA. 
um, in the Department of Psychology, but we have about nine tracks at uh, UCLA. And what did you do before a PhD? Like, what was your yeah, what was the um, track to get there? I spent about ten or eleven years between my undergrad and my grad degree working in various aspects of both uh, health and human services as well as high tech. So um, I worked in every possible imaginable health and human service job during and after college. I've worked in group homes with multiply disabled, retarded adults. I've worked in acute inpatient crisis psych. I've worked in kids programs, geriatric programs, inpatient, outpatient, um, really a broad uh, you know, mental health kind of experience. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, what to go back and get for a degree or, you know, what to pursue for grad school. Was your master's in clinical social work? I do not have a master's. I have a, a, a bachelor's. Well, I mean, I have a master's as part of my PhD. Right. But right, nowadays, right. They don't, you, you don't get a master's anymore unless it's oh. a terminal master's. Meaning there's no PhD to get. Or Meaning that there's no there's no masters to get on the way to a PhD separately. Got it. In Got most it. places, and you don't save any time getting a masters first and then getting a PhD. Usually, okay. you're awarded a masters two to three years into your PhD, if it makes sense for your program. Okay. But you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you did a masters and then a PhD. Right. Right. Um, nowadays, a PhD is a five to nine year program. In the, in the U.S., the average length of time is over eight years to complete now. Wow. wow. Um, and you get a masters along the way usually in these research programs or yep. clinical programs. So I have a bachelor's of science from uh, UMass Amherst in psych with a neuroscience focus. And mm -hmm. then 11 years later, I started at UCLA and uh, got a, a cognitive neuroscience degree, which is really this sort of mind-brain intersection. Long did, how long did it take you? Uh, seven years. Um, I was teaching aggressively for a lot of that time. So I was you know, right. teaching geriatric courses. I was teaching fellow in um, a sort of freshman uh, education program. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a lot of different, you know, do a lot of different things. And a grad program is this you know, sort of amorphous, never-ending, uh, yeah. at least for a PhD. Um, but what I studied, I, I, in, in those 10 or 11 years between grad and under, or undergrad and grad, um, the last chunk of that time, the last three years or so, I was working for somebody else doing neurofeedback. I had heard about it, I was interested in it, and I finally found someone I thought was a good person to work with. And uh, this, this place in Providence, Rhode Island, called the Neuro Development Center, which is one of the best uh, neurofeedback centers in the world. Hmm. I just happened to find this you know, local resource when I was living in uh, New England at the time. And started working there, and over the next few years, I saw incredible things. I saw ADHD symptoms eliminated reliably in a few months, I saw nonverbal autistic kids start talking. Um, kids with no eye contact, self-stimming, you know, stop their self-stimming and start making eye contact and having humor. Hmm. I saw major depression go away, sleep issues go away, seizures get reduced, migraines go away. Wow! Again and again and again, and this was, uh, you know, again about at this point about uh, f more than 15 years ago. And there were probably two or three different schools of thought, if you will, in neurofeedback in terms of how it works. Mm -hmm. The underlying theories in those schools of thought were all in complete and utter conflict. They could not be reconciled. And yet, practitioners who sort of believe the, the schools of thought or the churches of neurofeedback, um, there were three different really approaches, they all had efficacy rates that were ridiculously high for mental health, 70%, 80%, 90%. And that's absurd for mental health. I mean, right. I mean psychotherapy is like 50%. Most meds are 30 to 50%. Um, and, we were, and here we were twice as good regardless of the technique we were using. Hmm. And so the fact that all these practitioners were getting results but had underlying theories that were in com complete conflict... Uh, really, so I, I, I call were this they, a... Were they doing it... Were they practicing different techniques? They were. Huh. Yeah. 
Absolutely. But they were all related to the kind of neural feedback that you're that you do now. Or uh, not no, so much? no. There was some different. There were some different approaches. Oh, really? In the field, even then, now the field's elaborated. There's actually more different approaches now than there were, you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But even 15 years ago, there were a few different approaches, and people really believed strongly that theirs was the best way. And yet, all three sort of churches or schools of thought were getting great results. Are they are they all physical um, as opposed to emotional? Uh, you know, like, is, is, are there any that are talking based like therapy? No, no, I mean, there are, but that's, that's irrelevant. Um, and in fact, the physical, yeah, it's, it's training, um, it's it's operating conditioning. Okay. It's like Skinner, not Pavlov. So you're getting pigeons to pack a bar, not a dog to drool from some random stimuli, you know? Um, and in this case, the pigeon is your brainwave being taught to do certain things. Um, the process of neurofeedback is involuntary. Okay. You don't try. Right. You know, your brainwaves are always fluctuating around left and right, up and down. Let's say theta. Here's a good example. Theta is a brainwave that is really high when you're distractible or impulsive. And when you make a lot of theta, you're somebody who notices everything in the environment, is always switching gears, is always noticing, you know, probably impulsive, hyperactive, fidgety. Um, but theta is not some fixed resource. It goes up and down moment to moment. So whenever it happens to go down, you're a little tiny bit more focused. And so we just measure it moment to moment. And whenever it happens to trend in the right direction, we give your brain a reward with some audio or visual feedback, a spaceship. It's not food. Not food. Although the very first neurofeedback (laughs) that was done in the late 60s was done with milk as a reward. Yeah, this is for cats. Cats like milk. Oh, oh, Um, not people. Not people. (laughs) Really? But no, the very first study that was done, and this was sort of a, they didn't didn't even know what they were doing really. Hmm. Um, A professor at UCLA in the late 60s was approached by NASA to say, you know, our astronauts are getting sick. Uh, they're being exposed, we think, to hydro, uh, um, hydrazine. Methylhydrazine is a rocket fuel, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we think they're getting sick from rocket fuel vapors. Could you please test rocket fuel and see how dangerous it is to mammals? And this Professor Barry Sturman, uh, at the time, his test animal was cats. In the late 60s, we do much less animal research now, of course, right. but back then it was pretty prevalent. And um, Barry built a plexiglass cage and put a little beaker of... Uh, rocket fuel in the cage and closed the cat in the cage and started a, a clock. And minutes exposed to vapor was exposure. And it was a beautiful dose-dependent curve where a little more exposure means stumbling and then a little more is crying and then drooling and then wow. seizure, coma, death. It was this like perfect linear curve for, for what this stuff was doing to destabilize the brain and cause eventually death. Yep. And of the 30 or so cats that he was doing this to, most of them had this perfect linear curve. They all fit on it beautifully but a handful of them did not. They refused to have seizures, and they needed two and a half times the exposure to show these instability features in their brain. Hmm. He couldn't figure out why until he remembered he'd used these same handful of cats in a previous experiment several months before to see if they could be trained to raise a very obvious brainwave that cats make in response to a milk dropper reward. And they could. He thought that was interesting. Very short experiment. Put them back in the subject pool. Months later, these cats had like really stable brains and refused to have seizures. Wow. So the story gets better. Um, His lab assistant was a medication uncontrolled epileptic. She was on lots of meds and still having like tens of seizures a month. And she basically demanded he build her a machine. And over the next couple of years, they trained her off and on. And a couple of years later, she went off all meds and remained seizure-free for almost a year. Wow. And she was having, you know, many, many, many seizures of, you know, pretty severe uh, 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 
quality. So um, this was the start of neurofeedback. Was, was she doing the milk dropper too? Was no, no. I think it was an audio reward. Got it. In, Got it. It, doesn't, it doesn't have to be appetitive or interesting, the reward. Right. A simple beep, whenever your brain did the right thing or moved or trended in the right direction would be sufficient. Right. But we often do things that are more interesting. You know, simple beeps aren't that exciting. Yep. Um, it works technique-wise. Money? Does money work? Mo- no, it needs to be a, a, a stream of stimuli that is coming and going. You can stream the money. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we, so you're not bribing the, the patient. No, in fact, it's not, not voluntary. This is not your conscious ah, right, mind. Right, 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 right. The brain's fluctuating, and it likes input. So Got when it. it fluctuates in one direction, we provide input. When it fluctuates in the wrong direction, quote unquote, we withhold the input. The brain right, goes, hey, right. wait, I was watching that. Right. And then it just happens to naturally move in the right direction. And the game resumes. The spaceship flies faster. The movie screen lights up. The mm-hmm. uh, Pac-Man eats dots, whatever it is. And then so in half an hour of training, you have hundreds of little stops and starts of stimuli trains. And whenever the brain is moving in the quote unquote right direction, the stimuli run. When it moves in the wrong direction, the stimuli stop. And the brain starts to notice that, oh, wait a minute, whenever I drop my theta and raise my beta, I get more input from the environment. Oh, that's cool. I'm getting control. Let's do more of that. But it happens subtly, slowly over many days. So you don't feel it right away usually. Um, You can't control it voluntarily. It's picking up fluctuating brainwave activity happening in a time scale you can't perceive. A lot of activity is happening below 100 milliseconds and is affecting the average brainwave moment to moment. And so that's really what your training is, this real short time course, really fast, involuntary way to condition or or shape the EEG up or down. And then we determine, is that the right thing to do to your particular brain? Oh, we train you for lower theta, more beta. For most people, that's better executive function, better sleep, better self-control, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's the wrong thing for you. Instead of making you feel more alert, we make you feel spacey. So there's right. a lot of iteration. The process, there is no one-size-fits-all in neurofeedback. Right. And there's no short course of neurofeedback. I mean, the brain takes weeks and weeks and weeks to change permanently. You can provoke an effect in a few days. But you can't get any change in less than about five or six weeks that lasts. And so there are a few people out there that do neurofeedback aggressively for a week and then send you off on your own with no Mm follow-up. That is not an effective way to actually make a change. It's an an experience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not an actual training program. It's kind of like going through a Tony Robbins five-day experience and then going back to your life and then... You know, so I'm sure some people that sticks for some people. I don't. I don't even know if it sticks for some people. It it, it probably doesn't. A physiological the experience can be very right. you know compelling, very real, very compelling. But it's not going to move the, the in, unless right. that their brain was ready to go there anyways. Brains don't change quickly. I mean, we did a QEG on you today, and if I did one on you in a year without doing significant neurofeedback or meditation or meds or something or head injuries, mm-hmm. it would look the same a year from now right. than it does right now. Right. This is very stable, very robust data year after year. The brain is a stable machine that is chaotic. It has all these regulatory domains where it finds stability and it has sort of a a mixture of chaos and stability. It's sort of balancing between at all times. Mm -hmm. And then to change it, you have to encourage it to sort of move a couple resources and it has to find a new stability to rest in. And that takes... Um, days for the brain to start moving, I mean, actually even minutes. Um, I've done some research showing that the brain picks up the neurofeedback signal in about 10 minutes. The first time you train, the brain goes, oh, that's me, and starts to bind to the signal in some interesting way. Hmm. But we don't usually get significant effects for a handful of days, and you know, all the, all the traditional neurofeedback people in the world have been practicing for you know, 50, 60 years at this point. Um, they all do 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 and up sessions. So there's a few of these really sexy um, programs out there for doing biohacking where you do like a week straight and that's it. 
that's interesting, but not really neurofeedback. It's not stick. I mean, I mean, it's neurofeedback techniques, but it's not taking your brain and moving it. It's yeah. just you know giving you a little push. It's like if you worked out aggressively for a week, right. for four or five days. Yeah, you'd be sore. Yeah, you might feel something. Yeah, it might do something to your body. But if you stop working out at the end of that week, you're you're not going to maintain any right. any any of the changes you've started. Right. And that's that's actually one of my biggest problems with how neurofeedback is being sort of marketed these days. Um, a people either use special proprietary quote unquote systems where the you know, it's it's hidden special sauce, mm-hmm. and that really bothers me. I'm I'm of the opinion that this stuff needs to be demystified yeah. and brought back down to the evidence as often as possible. Look at the brain mapping. I mean, a certain number of people in the in the field don't even use brain mapping. They just use kind of recipe books to pick what they're going to do, mm-hmm. and they still have adequate results. But why would you not want to get all the data about one individual brain? tailor the process, and adjust as you go. That seems to be the best way to do this. Right. And it keeps it out of the realm of woo. It keeps it really about your particular brain. Like, we're looking at your brain here, Andy. Mm-hmm. And for the, cool. for the listeners, um, we're looking at, at, at some theta amplitudes, which show up as three. A lot of red. Yeah. The red means three standard deviations above average. Wow. Um, at least three. And so you're at uh, three standard deviations. I'm off the charts. You are. In both theta and alpha. Huh. And this is eyes closed. Let me switch to eyes open where the executive function markers actually mean a little more. That's eyes open. It looks really similar. Um, so having theta this high pretty much means you're impulsive. You, you, you switch gears really quickly. Yeah. And you probably notice everything in the environment. You have a really hard time filtering, probably stick, staying heads down on some project without you know, getting that's distracted yeah, is very true. difficult. Yep. Uh, and that's theta. Basically, high theta means low inhibition. You notice everything, you think everything, you react everything to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's essentially an ADHD pattern, you wow. know, shockingly. Um, if we look at ratios of different frequencies, the, the FDA considers the theta-beta ratio a very well-validated marker for ADHD. And here's some ratios, theta over beta and theta over high beta. And you're at about around two standard deviations on this marker. So... From the FDA's sort of validated, but why is it? Uh, I'm looking at a picture of my skull from the top. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I see my nose up at the top, my ears out to the sides. Yeah. What What is it telling me that there are certain parts of my brain that are, you know, like it's supposed yeah. to the whole thing? Well, the scalp is not necessarily all that spatially accurate compared to the brain because electricity mixes in the jelly of the brain and then spreads right. out and hits the scalp. So we actually look at the reference or the the spatialization, if you will, in two different ways. This way right here is called Laplacian, where we look at every spot compared to its surrounding spot. So it's emphasizing local variability. And so this spot on the left temporal lobe is higher than the middle cortex but that's really only in this way of looking at the data. We also, the sort of clinical way is looking at linked ears or the earlobes as the reference. When I do that, the patterns change. And you can see your theta-beta ratios in the linked ears are actually much more broad. Using the earlobes as the reference point, as a subtraction point, emphasizes signals that are really broad across the cortex. And so... Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of the spatial, the spatial you know, resolution here. The theta-beta ratio is higher in the back of your head a little bit than the front, mm-hmm. and that might mean that this impulsivity has a sensory component where you have a hard time uh, filtering, noticing things, or um, maybe have some sensory integration stuff where like textures become annoying or weird smells or something you notice, or you walk into a supermarket and you can't not hear the whining fluorescent light that's out of balance. Mm-hmm. Um, people that have a, like sensory integration or poor filtering often have a little more of the impulsivity markers in the back of the head.
bad. Right. Um, that might be true for you. It might not. The spatial, you have to be really suspicious believing spatial resolution at the scalp. So one thing I'm, I'm, uh, I often do is I solve for the scalp data to find where in the brain it's actually coming from. This is a process called Loretta. Low, uh, low density something. I forget what the, what the, what the acronym stands for. But Loretta essentially is a inverse solution from the scalp data to solve from where it's coming from in the brain. And we're only using 21 scalp electrodes for you here. If we went up to about 70, the Loretta solution for where in your brain things are coming from is as precise as fMRI. So usually we think of EEG as temporally in time, mm-hmm. incredibly precise, in a millisecond or less. And fMRI, spatially precise, about, about a square millimeter or cubic millimeter. But fMRI has time precision in the order of seconds. And EEG has spatial precision that's like several centimeters. Unless you use this technique, and then you can solve for where in the brain things are coming from without using an MRI magnet. So, wow. that, so it's a much cheaper way to do uh, sort of coarse neuroimaging if you want. But we're just looking at scalp patterns. Those are really the best clinically validated, so we try to interpret them as best we can. Okay. Um, so, so I have ADD. You, you, not only do you have ADD uh, classic, which means impulsivity, uh-huh. you also have alpha excess. And when you open your eyes, so alpha is an, an idling frequency. When most of us close our eyes, the back of the head, the visual cortex, goes into alpha. And when most of us open our eyes, the back of the head suppresses alpha fully. Okay. And your brain stays broadly across the whole cortex, high in alpha with your eyes open. And that is inattention. That's being stuck in neutral. So essentially what's happening is you're both ADD and what we used to call ADHD. So now we call it ADD or ADHD rather PI, primarily inattentive. But you have both. You have the hyperactive impulsive flavor, which is theta excess, and the inattentive flavor, which is alpha excess. Does it matter that when my eyes were open, they were they were like this? Like, does that no, work? not really. As long as you're getting some light in them, it would suppress yeah. alpha theoretically. Okay. As long as there was some vision to process. Okay. Um, even if it wasn't clear vision, it would still some some input would suppress alpha. So essentially, you're a little bit ADHD in 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 the nice mixture of ADHD. Classically, you know, a little inattentive, a little impulsive, a little mm-hmm. hyperactive. Sure. I mean, behaviorally, you're not severe. You're of course an adult. Right. I'm guessing. I can ask your mom here. I'm guessing when you were a little younger. <laughs> hey, wait a second. Yeah, I know. We, I know. I know. <laughs> Um, I'm guessing when Andy was uh, a kid, you know, six, seven, eight years old, he was much more excitable, distractible, moving in many more directions at once. Is that true? Not really. Not really. Okay. So these might be subacute things that look more ADHD-like than I, hmm. you know, than is true. And that is true about QEEG. This is not a diagnosis. It's a, it's a hint. The joke I right, tell is it's right. prognostic, not diagnostic. I mean, okay. interacting with you, you are a little distractible. You are touch, you know, hyperactive. Yeah, I mean, like my partner, my business partner, Michael, and I always joke, I'm kind of the quick start guy. Like I see something, fall in love with it, yep. and let's, or at least... I, I'm intrigued enough to just jump in great, and start. Great. And he's more conservative. He's slower. Sure, he sure. needs more information. Methodical. Yeah, he's yeah, methodical. Yeah. So we balance each other really well in that way. But it, it does cause rifts yeah, and, sure, and sure. arguments and like, yeah, why are you going so slow? And he's like, <laughs> slow the hell down. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, so so far we see some executive function markers. They're pretty classic ones. Um, you know, ADHD is not only a deficit, of course. You have the ability to notice more things in the environment, to switch gears faster. Right. Um, I also think that the word deficit in ADHD is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, we all know 16-year-old teenage ADHD boys who can sit and play video games without a break for 27 hours straight. Right. That's not a deficit of attention. It maybe isn't well-regulated attention, and, right. and the issue ends up being that 
frontal slow waves, theta waves, um, get suppressed when we're excited or engaged. And so these teenagers who can play video games all day long are engaged by the video game. So they actually aren't in an ADHD mode right then. Hmm. And you asked earlier if your wife needed to know about your ADHD. Um, (laughs) People that have some executive function differences like this have a tendency to to, um, stack their environment uh, towards things that will make them feel more engaged. And that includes things like extreme sports and drugs and risky sex and arguments. So kids with ADHD have a tendency to train their parents to fight with them because the conflict they experience while they're being yelled at or they're in trouble lights up the frontal lobe and they feel on. So without even knowing it, a lot of kids with ADHD have created these adversarial relationships with their parents because that's when they feel most awake and most alert. And this can potentially bleed over into adult life, too. So if you find yourself poking at your wife just to get into that sort of, you know... I I don't do that consciously, but I I would guess if she were here and heard that, she would say, oh, interesting. Yeah. You do poke me. Like, I do poke her at her. um, So you might not feel quite as on unless you're slightly stressed or or in conflict. That's interesting. It's also why those of us with ADHD have a tendency to not do work until the pressure of the deadline is like looming and and stressful. We we need the stress to engage. Right. And I've also done, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call these sports I've done extreme. Well, some people would definitely call them extreme. Um, But, you know, adventure racing, extreme distances, Mm -hmm. extreme heights, extreme Mm -hmm. speed, you know, like mountain bikes. Anything really stimulating. Yeah. Like now, speaking go, of some hella, of these... I go hella snowboard or do you? I go nice. cat snowboarding uh-huh, and skiing. Uh-huh. And okay, so, so yeah. some of these things, skiing, snowboarding, mountain bike riding, will lead us to our next thing we found in your brain. So we did, <laughs> we did a uh, analysis... More bad news. It, well, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we did an analysis <laughs> of your brain here, compared to people that have had head injuries. And on this, we're looking at a couple of bell curves that overlap. The green bell curve is a normal population, uh-huh. and the red bell curve is a population that has had head injuries. Okay. And you are the dotted line between them. Wow. And the likelihood, this is statistics, the likelihood of this being true, that you've had some traumatic brain injuries is 70%. Okay. And the severity is moderate. So okay. the amount of tracked sort of disintegrity and phase oddities and, you know, sort of direction of, of oddness in your brain suggests that it's, you know, more than two thirds likely you've had some wear and tear damage. Is it concussions. odd that it's right in the middle? No, like it's, no, no? it's really quite common actually. Um, I, but the way, what I'm seeing, I know you guys can't see this, but there's a, there's a graph, a big kind of a peak, very peaky bell curve. Inverted mm-hmm. bell curve, right? It's bell curve. A, no, bell curve. Yeah. Bell curve, right. Yep. Uh, green, that's the people that have not had traumatic brain injuries. Mm-hmm. And then there's one to the right of it that's the red. That's And I'm right between the two. And you're right between the two. And, and the two bell curves overlap by like the top third of one, the bottom third of the other. And right. You're sort of right in the middle. So you're, you're sort of low severity or moderate severity if people have had head injuries. But the tract integrity is unusually, unusually different compared to a normal population. So again, that's why it's a 70% likelihood, not a 99% or something. Right. So it's likely, and, and, I, and I'm looking at enough stuff in your brain, I, I do believe it's likely. Okay. It looks to me like you've had some concussions. Yep, I probably have. Um, I, mean, I, I think of the crashes I've had. I think of the 
collisions I've had on bikes. Mm-hmm. I think of the um, rock climbing I've done. So um, something, and, and you know, you might not ever have lost consciousness. This might yeah. just be subacute no, stuff. Never, yeah, I don't think I've lost um, consciousness. We used to think that unless Marines, you lost consciousness, you, you, you didn't have a concussion. Now we know that even mild hits produce concussive damage. Right. You, know, you send a kid out, a, a college kid out to do a, a heading drill in a soccer game yep. or soccer practice. One single drill shows massive cellular and electrical changes right after they're done. Wow. One single 20-minute, hit the ball 20 times to your head kind of thing. One single drill shows massive changes right after you're done. We don't know how long it takes to recover from that, and right. we know that repetitive injury is, is the real issue, not acute individual injuries. Wow. So it's very likely that you've received some, over time, some wear and tear damage. They've, they've out, actually outlined, my, my play, um, I coach the, my son's mm-hmm. YSO mm-hmm. soccer team, and for any of the kids under U12... No, no heading? 12? No heading. Good. As, as a neuroscientist, I would never let a kid of my head a ball or play football, ever. Right. Certain, right. I mean, I'm, I, I grew up playing hockey and cycling and fencing and some other stuff. Um, cycling's fine. Fencing is fine. But hockey's not. Hockey, not the way it's actually played. Right. Um, and it's, it's because you're moving at speed and then you suddenly stop. Yeah. And when you oh. suddenly stop, the brain continues to move inside the Slide, skull. Bounces, and, yeah. So you're, right. you're receiving low acuity impacts all the time when you're getting <clears throat> body checked and things. And yeah. forget if you're actually in a fight in hockey, right? right? And then, right. then it's all bets are off. But any of these things where the head's receiving impact, there is no safe level of head impact. Hmm. None. Hmm. So if your head is ever impacted in a sport, that's a sport where you're receiving brain damage, period. There's no level of safe head impact. None. Wow. So something to think about. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that the kids are uh, not heading the ball. Does it make a difference uh, that, late, you know, like, does, it, does, it, does head trauma at an earlier age do more damage yes, than later? it does. So it's good that it's after 12. Yes, but I wouldn't let, I wouldn't let a college kid, have, I mean, if I had, a, if I had a, high, a, a kid, I don't have any children, but if I had a college kid, I would, I would you know, he's an adult, so I would let him do what he wants, but yeah. I would really dramatically uh, encourage him to think about a non-impact sport wow. um, because there is, n- again, no safe level. Um, the study that came out last year showing that high school seniors, a senior, uh, they, they assessed pre and post uh, season kids and kids that had never played a single game just went to practice showed early evidence of CTE, the sort of mm-hmm. you know, NFL syndrome, essentially yep. chronic yep. traumatic encephalopathy, um, mild damage to tissue that eventually leads to Alzheimer's like degradation in the tissue who had never played, never played simply practicing with the team all season long. Wow. Wow. So, we will discover, I think 10 years from now, we will discover that we've been doing really dramatic disservice to a lot of the kids in with, our sports With helmets systems. on? With, with helmets hel- off? Helmets the, on. With helmets on. Yeah. Like, do, do you think rugby players experience Absolutely. Similar? Rugby... So helmets or no helmets? Helmets really or no helmets matter. does not really matter. You'll receive less acute damage in massive you know, plays with, with, with helmets. But the most of the damage is not done from hitting the head. It's from the brain hitting the inside of the skull. Right. And so it's about the acceleration and then sudden stopping. That's really what the dam- where the damage comes from. Right. It's suddenly stopping the body and the and brain. And that could be up against a wall when you're taking a ch- in hockey. Absolutely. Know, yeah, right. absolutely. Could be hitting a player that's 250 pounds when you're 180. Yep. Um, yep. There wow. is no without, safe. Without hitting your head. Without hitting your head. You hit your shoulders. You hit your back. It doesn't really matter. Huh. A lot of subacute damage seems to accrue over time from these wear and tear damages. Wow. Yeah, and these do affect your your, your lifelong health. Right. You know, the more kinds of these head injuries you have, the more likely you are to start developing 
you know, things that might be diagnosed as Alzheimer's, probably different methodology or rather, you know, mechanism. We know Alzheimer's at least partially has a sugar, you know, it's a, it's a diabetic syndrome in some yeah, ways. Type 3 diabetes. Yeah. Um, it's other things going on too. There's failures yeah. of amyloid to clear, but at least partially it's mediated by oxidation and glycation of sugars and, and neurons becoming uh, insulin resistant and starving to death. I mean, that, that's one of the processes. But you can get a lot of the same symptomology with simply wear and tear damage. So now that I know this, mm-hmm. is there anything I can do about it? Am I stuck with this? You're is not just, stuck. This is just what it is. You're not stuck. The good thing is brains change. And if you push it hard enough, it will change. I mean, the whole damn job of the brain is to change. Minimize pain, maximize gain, right. and learn. Right. So um, the good thing is neurofeedback, mindfulness, nootropics, those things can all affect this kind of stuff long term. Hmm. The sort of fastest way to get rid of these injuries would probably be neurofeedback. Hmm. Um, nootropics would be a short-term fix that might support. I What's mean, nootropics? Like paracetam, acetylcholine. These are What's all drugs? smart drugs. Oh, wow. um, but they're drugs that the, the, the word nootropic really means um, a compound, amino acid, a drug that improves brain health with no side effects. Hmm. So it's a very narrow category. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things are called nootropics that actually have side effects. Right. I mean, I assume there's some biohackers that listen to your show. They probably, many of them, think that modafinil is a nootropic. I would say it's absolutely not because it has life-threatening side effects for some people. Okay. Um, things like um, caffeine, not a nootropic. Enhances cognition, but it's addictive. It affects your cardiovascular system, your you know water balance. Right. Um, but it's getting closer. Things like um, the amino acid L uh, tyrosine, which is the precursor to dopamine, that's a nootropic. Okay. Things like uh, the racetam class, which are GABA-related dro- mo- molecules that seem to affect acetylcholine transmission for memory and learning, that's nootropic. Um, the amino acid found in tea, L-theanine, that makes you feel very calm and focused. That's a nootropic. But it's a very narrow category of compounds that Im- seem to improve cognition. And all the racetam class, which is developed in Belgium and Russia in like the 60s um, and the 70s, many of these things improve uh, outcomes after brain damage, drowning, or alcoholism. And so the rebuilding brain tissue or helping oxygenation and seem to improve long-term outcomes. So do you work with people with nootropics? I or? do a little bit. I actually am the lead scientist behind a company called TrueBrain. Mm-hmm. I designed a, a couple of products for them several years ago. I'm not really actively involved with the company anymore, but mm-hmm. I sort of vet different recipes and, and give them you know, sort of scientific oversight a little bit. Um, but that is a sort of a stack or a blend of nootropics that is sort of a starting place for many people. Nootropics are often a pretty individualized strategy. You dial things in for yourself, just the way you would for supplements. Mm-hmm. But um, we sort of feel... Are our, they I, over the counter? I mean, they are, yeah. They're, 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 they're not prescriptive. Oh, really? um, they're, I don't know anything about this. Yeah, I don't know anything about any of this. It's quite, <laughs> like, I feel like I've just ex- discovered... You know when they talk about peeling an onion? Yeah. Like, this isn't... I'm at the surface. I'm not even... I'm not even like one layer <laughs> below the surface, and it's an entire world that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty complicated world, unfortunately. It's a bit of a wild west uh, these days as well. Um, the, uh, the nootropic space is unregulated, just like the supplement spaces. In fact, mm-hmm. many people consider them supplements, although they legally are not. Right. Supplements have to be legally things your body needs. I just thought of something. Like Onnit's got a product called... Um, yeah, Alpha Brain. Alpha Brain. Sure. Is that yeah, a True Brain is a competitor to Alpha Brain. Got it, True Brain, got it. Uh, okay. Alpha Brain is largely the, the effort 
efficacy, I think, is largely driven by a choline form called alpha-GPC. Choline is the raw material for acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter for learning and memory. Choline is also used in phosphatidylcholine in the cell membrane, so it helps uh, membrane health and general you know, sort of cellular health. Uh, right. And that's, I think, why alpha-GPC has some benefits. Uh, TrueBrain uses citicoline or alpha-GPC as its choline source, depending on which version we're talking about for TrueBrain. And it adds racetams, which are a much heavier lifter in the nootropic world okay. than than a choline source is by itself. But your work that you do here yeah. is more uh, um, process. Based. Yes, Peak Brain is a service. Uh, you know, the, the the neurofeedback, the, the brain training we do is a is we're sort of like a gym for the brain or a spa to some right. extent. Right. So you come in, you we it's, it's like you went to a gym and got like a physical fitness assessment, mm-hmm. and then sat down with a personal trainer. That's and, what I just had, right? I just yeah, had the assessment, and now absolutely. we're looking at the brain, and now you're going to say, okay, your program is absolutely three days a week. Here, come in here and are do. some things we identify as goals. And, and I guess one of the ways I'm different from most neurofeedbackers is that I'm not a doctor, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist saying, oh, sir, we're going to do this to you. I'm more like your personal trainer saying, ah, oh, here's some things we could work on. What are your goals? Let's prioritize those. Let's get you, let's get you closer to those goals. Right. So we do neurofeedback much more like a coach would okay. and much less like a doctor's office. And, and as you can see, the, our center's not very medically looking. We're, no, we're, no. we're very low-key well, open. you got drums, you got yeah. cellos, you've got space <laughs> for, you know, like there's yeah, obviously things groups. going on here more Absolutely. than just like little private yeah. you know, rooms. Yeah, we have free mindfulness groups in the evenings for adults and afternoons and the weekends for kids. And What's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? Meditation. Nothing. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. Mindfulness is the sort of sanitized version of meditation. Okay. Um, it's the basic techniques. Um, I think mindfulness may have been coined by the term people like John Kabat-Zinn and, J- and Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein in the 70s. I mean, of course, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, is John Kabat-Zinn's sort of heavily structured program uh, out of UMass uh, Worcester, uh, UMass Medical, um, that shows you can actually reduce pain and improve healing and recovery with meditation. Okay. But mindfulness is simply basic meditation techniques without any trappings or cosmology or anything else that's no more... religious sp- overtones, exactly. no zen, you exactly. know, like- Got it. Okay. I mean, although that being said, the vast majority of meditation in traditional environments, Buddhism, etc., is also not religious. Right. There is no cosmology right. in traditional Buddhism. It's not right. about God or how you're created. It's about how your mind works. Right. Traditional Buddhism is actually psychology much more than it is religion. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I studied Zen Buddhism with a teacher in Santa Monica for many years. So great. Yeah. So, so, so you have Very some familiar. sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, mindfulness, the way I define it, is sort of an, uh, an adaptation, I think, of uh, Jack Kornfield's uh, definition, which is paying attention to the present moment in a specific way, on purpose, with curiosity instead of judgment. And it sounds very like easy. That. You anchor like yourself that. to the moment in a specific way. You choose how to attend. Present time awareness, single point awareness, loving kindness awareness, uh, a sound like a TM, you know, a, mm-hmm. a thing. Um, and you hold your anchor. And when you notice you've drifted, you let it go, go back to the anchor. That's the rep of, of mindfulness. Mm. It's very easy to learn. It's very hard to, you know, to practice, to practice because yeah. it's, it's effortful. And it takes some time. Yeah. Um, we can do some of the same things in the feedback without any trying. <laughs> In fact, I actually work with a lot of people that do a lot of meditation, and when they start adding in neurofeedback, their meditation practice and depth and ability just takes off. Well, it's interesting. I, I have a meditation practice. I've been trying for years to develop one. Mm-hmm. I used to do. I used to go to the Santa Monica Zen Center, and I, wonderful. When I went in a group, and I had to show up at a certain time, you know, five o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was for the group meditation, I could do it, no problem. Mm-hmm. But for years, I was unable to translate that into any sort of practice on my own. Uh, I, would, yeah. I, would, I would 
you know, 20,000 other things on my mind, mm -hmm. I wouldn't sit down to do it. And most yep. recently, this is really over, over the past three or four months, I've been able to carve out five to 10 minutes. Oh, good. Every good, morning, good, and I good. sit for five to 10. But I wonder if any of these things that we're seeing in my brain are, are cause some of the challenges I have. Absolutely. With. Your inability to sit and meditate more is being driven, at least partially, by the distractibility, the impulsivity your brain has. Mm -hmm. I mean, anyone with a brain has some impulsivity. You sit and meditate, and within seconds, you're, my knee hurts, my stomach's hungry, oh, that yeah. girl's cute, oh, I have something to do tomorrow. You think, you plan, you dream, you wish. Um, that's just because you have a mind. Right. And that's right. not a problem with meditation. People often think, oh, I can't meditate. I can't get to a blank mind. Right. No, no, no. Blanking your mind is not meditation. Anchoring your attention right. is meditation. Right. That right. can lead to a blank mind, to more spaciousness between your thoughts. But the act of meditation is not creating space. It's anchoring. Right. And so we really support that here. Um, I think you're right. Until you start doing it, it on your own, without any aids, no lead, you know, audio tapes, no, yeah. you know, until you start doing it on your own, you can't really develop serious muscle, so to speak, in meditation. Yeah. But also, I mean, the, you know, to go back to a Buddhist perspective, the three gems of Buddhism are the Dharma, the Sangha, and the Buddha. Mm -hmm. The Sangha is the community. It yeah. is actually easier to sit and meditate with a group of people than yes. by yourself. Absolutely. If for no other 100%. reason, because 20 minutes in, oh, my knee hurts and I'm hungry. But there's... But they're still down. But they're like, still sitting. Okay, I'm going to keep going. I can keep going. Right? right. So there's the social pressure. Right. So um, finding a sangha, community to meditate with, I think is really critical. And at Peak Brain, we offer free meditation groups for just that purpose, just mm -hmm. to get people in here. I mean, the, the neurofeedback and brain mapping is somewhat you know, technical, laborious, time-intensive, expensive. Yep. But meditation, you're always carrying around the equipment to do it, hopefully. Right. right. Um, and so we really try to give something back and provide a place for people to come meditate, cool. encourage them to do it. and you know, without having to reach for their wallet to do big, you know, hardcore things like brain mapping and, and neurofeedback. Right. So, all right. So let's let's look at your brain maps a little more. We saw a little damage, um, but again, we could get rid of that with some neurofeedback if you want. Mm -hmm. um, and the nootropics would, would would be more of a temporary change. Okay, that's that's why I often encourage neurofeedback for significant things versus nootropics because you'll change baselines over a couple of months with neurofeedback, and then you can boost that baseline further temporarily with nootropics if you want. Okay. Um, okay. The other, the only other thing to look at is how fast your brain is. Oh God. Now you're you're young. You're young <laughs> enough. Jesus. You should not have more bad news. No, actually, no. Oh, okay, Let's see. I'm, so I'm bracing myself. We're looking at the speed of your alpha waves, which is like a medium frequent, the middle frequency in the brain. Mm -hmm. And average for humans is about 10 hertz, 10 cycles per second. And yours is right around uh, 8.5 to 9, which does seem a little slow. Mm -hmm. This is just the measurement, the hertz. Let's look at the statistic or the z-score. Okay. Actually, your alpha is slow. Your brain is slow. This does uh, reinforce the idea of having had significant head trauma. Jeez. You are... <laughs> You are three God. to four standard deviations below average oh. in the speed of your alpha. This suggests I need not a drink. This suggests. <laughs> you, yeah. God. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Um, and your theta waves are three to four standard deviations faster than average. Okay. So theta is faster and alpha is slower. That basically means they're the same frequency. Your brain is stuck in this mode, this slightly impulsive, slightly distractible mode, because of wear and tear damage. The oh. whole brain is struggling a little bit because Actually, of... Actually, this is good news because I'm it, performing in my life very at a very well. high level. So if this... If I can... If I can straighten this out, You've maybe... Got, you have performance gains to be had. There's right. stuff on the table right. for you. That's kind of cool. Yeah. And, and it's great that you're not having you know, no, no deficits now, but it looks well, like... Well, maybe I we am and I don't know it. 
Well, you know, relatively, humans are so bad at, at gauging where our performance is. We have no idea. We, right. You know, and we, have, we, we cannot notice when it degrades. Yeah. We just adapt because the brain's so adaptable. We're good at doing that. But if we did some training, you would probably have pretty significant improvements in uh, depth of sleep, sleep onset, ability to wake up cleanly and be sharp right away. I sleep instantly. My mom you is. Do? Well, uh-huh. she, my mom thought I was sleeping during the test over here. Uh-huh. She's, she's like nudging me, like, wake up. <laughs> Um, so that's not a problem, but we, oh, we also saw but maybe I don't sleep very well. It I don't looks know. like you. Do, it looks like you have some sleep maintenance. I'm going to eyes closed. Um, you have a little hot spot of beta in the back middle of your head, which is the posterior cingulate cortex. The posterior cingulate's job is to scan the environment and make sure that what you're doing is what's going to keep you safe. So let's say you're driving your mom back home and she's in the back seat because you know you want to chauffeur her, yep. and you're looking back in the back seat and talking to her and not watching the road. That sense of uh, I better watch the road. That's the posterior cingulate okay. doing its job. Got it. And so yours is a bit hot, a bit high. And your anterior cingulate's also a tiny bit high in beta. So the posterior is that sense of scanning the environment, hypervigilance. The anterior cingulates involve a switching attention. And when it's a little hot like this, a little high in beta, we often get a little bit of ruminative uh, complaint. People kind of go in circles, a little OCD sometimes. So this actually looks a tiny bit like OCD or PTSD, sort of ruminative, a little perseverative. I'm guessing things can trigger you and you tend to get stuck on them. That's very true. Um, and with the posterior beta excesses, we usually get reports of sleep maintenance issues, meaning mm-hmm. waking up at the end of every sleep cycle. It's like every hour and a half or so, you wake up and go, okay, well, back to sleep. But, you know, that's That not, definitely happens. Okay. So it doesn't happen maintenance. all night long. Usually it happens at like four in the morning. Okay. And then again at 530. Okay. And then, uh, yep. you know, So the later part of sleep, yep. when it's lighter, you're breaking through. So, uh, the sort or maybe I'm doing it and not earlier quite not noticing fully it. conscious. Yeah, that's you know? possible. It's possible too. But it looks like you have some executive function stuff that might be secondary to head injuries more than congenital more than, you know, built in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks like you have a little bit of, you know, trauma kind of reaction stuff, like a little PTSD, a hint of it. Well, I was in the Marines. So Did you experience yeah. uh, we, we, we were the, a, a war fighter? I was in the first Persian Gulf War. Okay. Um, I mean, I never experienced what the Marines are experiencing today. Yep. But um, it's certainly But even possible. without acute flashbacks or anxiety or anything else, you could still have a touch of, you know, heightened attention system because sure. your brain learned the world does not always remain safe around you. No, and right. therefore, you better Absolutely. keep your, you know, metaphorical dukes up just in yep. case. Yep. And your eyes are closed here, but your visual system is scanning hmm. just in case. Hmm. So these are all, you know, subtle things that I guess if, if we train them away, you'd feel really comfortable internally. Now, now are these all, because I mean, I've got a laundry list of things to mm-hmm. work on here. Now, yep. does that mean yep. that I need hours and hours of work every day or, or do some things that you train fix a bunch they of things? They do. They do. Yeah. We would probably need, I mean, you would need a typical course based on what I'm looking at. Assuming you respond relatively easily mm-hmm. and about 90% of people do. So assuming you're one of the 90% who responds reliably, um, a three month program of three times a week would probably get rid of all of this permanently. Wow. But about two weeks in all the executive function stuff would start to really shift. And by the end of the first month, you would know what the gains were. You'd be having some days where they'd show up strongly, some days where they be hard I to find. I would actually notice something. Absolutely. Like I, do you notice, do you notice it in terms of how do you notice it? What 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 are, what are the you things would you feel notice? more checked in, more self controlled, huh. more you know, more laser like focus, focus. Um, more capacity, and a lot of people end up developing what I th- I think of now as resilience. Wow, stuff that bothers you bothers you less. 
Right. Stuff that wears I you out wears really you like out that. less. I would really like that. So you just get more horsepower, period, across right. all resources. And therefore, you're, you know, to extend the car metaphor, your driving becomes easier. It's kind of like I took you out of an old crappy VW bug yep. and put you in a Tesla. How you performed would change hmm. because you would use different resources. So we're really about building resources that you then just naturally use all the time. And wow. that's why it's permanent, because once you build a new system that you're then using, you're reinforcing it yourself every single time you use it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if I had come in here and I had been, you know, perfect in every way, I, I, <laughs> it's, it wouldn't have been wouldn't nearly have been, as intriguing. Not, not as exciting, certainly. No, I'm incredibly no. excited because I like... I'm doing this. Like I'm going to actually yep. work on this. Yeah, we'll, it, we'll, we'll get you some training and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Absolutely. Uh, like, I, and I'm going to have you back on and we'll do a follow up podcast. And yeah, we could. Well, well, why don't we do a month of hardcore training, which is not a full course, but it's enough to experience it, and okay. it's probably enough to change your brain and the brain maps. But not to keep, not to have it stick. It probably wouldn't quite stick. Something might. I mean, a right. month is about the minimum time I would ever think that something would stick. I usually tell people that they got to do at least two months, and and most people do three or four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you have an unusual brain a lot of head injuries, some autism, some, something else that's getting in the way, it might be a longer process. Mm -hmm. But for the executive function stuff, three months should get rid of most of and it. And do you, um, like every month, do another map yeah. of the brain? Yeah, we do it every other month okay. um, unless you aren't making gains or you're making really incredible gains or you change medication status or something else. Then we do that every month. But QEG, again, is a stable measure and it's really a 10,000 foot view of your brain, not getting the subtle things. And so that doesn't change very quickly. Okay, so I got a very strange, well, I mean, yeah. it's not a strange question at all. Do I have to have clean, dry hair no, every time I come you in? No, not. <laughs> And you can have all the caffeine you want in your system on the days you train oh, or, or any God. medications you want. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to shave my head. No, okay, no, I'm no, like, no, I'm no, shaving no. my head because this is just not worth it. No. You have to be clean head. of caffeine for the assessment because you're being compared to a caffeine-free database. Uh -huh. And you have to have no goop in your hair for the day we do the full head map because we have 24 electrodes to stick to your scalp and right. we can't prep everyone under the actual cap. Right. But okay. the days we train you, we'll put two ear clips on and one or two wires on top of your head. So we'll just prep that one spot and stick a wire on it to get a good signal. It's fine. Um, so no, you, you don't have to. You can come in with coconut oil in your okay, hair great. and everything else you want. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah, yeah. All right, great. So, so um, in summary, uh, a yeah. little executive function, a little wear and tear damage, and that has left you um, a little bit foggier than you need to be. And it's left you a little anxious, it looks like, and actually a little slower than you need to be. Um, you see here in the delta, this right back area, this yep. looks to me like the point of impact, actually, of your injury. Wow. Looks like you've had a, a posterior... Just one time, or um, who knows? Hard to say. This is where the damage is, and it's a stripe through the brain, which means either you, you, you impacted the left front, and the brain rebounded, yeah, or yeah, you impacted yeah. the back. So one of these two corners huh. is probably where, here's the other map, probably where the, the damage actually was. He did have a um, serious fall. He fell back, I yeah. Did? Andy's mom's chiming in, a fall on the back of his head. About 10 months. 10 months old, okay. And that could what? be showing up. What? And his head swelled because he still wasn't enclosed. It wasn't, it wasn't sealed wait, wait, yet. Wait, wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Are you serious? <laughs> fell down the steps. Fell down the steps. I was 10 months old? You were about, yeah, you were just starting to walk and it was hard to keep track of you. <laughs> Interesting. I think I should bring people's moms in for every time we talk about the. Was it uh, the QEG. steps at the at thirty seventh at the old house? Yeah, you fell down the basement outdoor basement. Steps. Those concrete steps. Those concrete steps. Holy cow! Okay. Those are gnarly steps. Yes. So we um we can wow. we may be able to chalk this up to that. Maybe it's from being the Marines. It doesn't really matter. This is a right, snapshot right. in time. I can't tell you why, 
but it's it's reasonable that you're experiencing some head injuries for lots of reasons. I'm learning so. a lot of things about myself right, right now. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I know you've yeah, got a coming in. Um, got, everybody on the podcast, I will be back. Yes. I'm going to be doing some brain training. I'm going to see what, what impact I can... Not impact. What, <laughs> what change and no impact. What, no what more benefits, impact. What benefits yeah. we can get for you. Uh, what what benefits, what I can do. And um, this is fascinating. I literally feel like I've explore, I've opened up a can of worms in a, 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 bit, a area bit. that I have yeah, yeah. never experienced. So people that are around the world like listening to this podcast... Yeah. So two questions. Number one, what are the kinds of things that you treat, like yeah. typically? And then the second question is, how would they find out more about you or, and or about what they can do yeah, if they want to, they're intrigued by what I'm finding? Yeah, so neurofeedback in general is really good for anything regulatory. And there's a whole host of things that we have very high success rates for across practitioners. And those include ADHD, seizures, migraines, anxiety, sleep issues, PTSD, OCD, major depression, um, creativity, alcoholism. Uh, I mean, the list, the list goes on. When you say alcoholism, what do you mean? I mean, you mean somebody's an alcoholic and they want to stop, or yeah, somebody... or they've done a lot of damage for many, many years oh, from drinking. It, we can rebuild it. the brain. Got it. But alcoholism or general substance abuse often has uh, pressure, you know, sort of pressured behavior driving it: impulsivity, anxiety, sleep right. issues. So you remove right. the the things pushing it. You can also you can't get rid of the alcoholism necessarily. But also, I mean, ninety five percent of people who are problem drinkers become non problem drinkers with zero intervention. So I'm doing the training. No, just period. And, and, and people in the world who become alcoholic, 95% of them become non-problem drinkers sooner or later with zero interventions. Oh, okay. So this idea of the alcoholic brain being some stuck thing and being a, a disease and being a behavior that is, you know. You mean it cures itself yes, eventually? mostly. Or you die? Are you drinking 95% of people that become problem drinkers become non-problem drinkers sooner or later. Huh. So, you know, the idea of are you alcoholic is a little bit of a mislabeling. It's like, do you have damage from alcohol? Oh, you do. Let's get rid of that. Oh, you have cravings that are still leading to the alcohol behavior? Right. Let's get rid of those. But it's not like I'm working on the, on the alcoholism. I don't really believe in that as a thing, as a, as a, or as a state. Or the shopaholicism or the yeah, gambling. Yeah, exactly. Or, or food addiction or food sex addiction, addiction or anything else. We can work addiction. on cravings right. and self control. Does, do you work with people on Absolutely. Like sugar addictions? Yeah. I mean, I have. I, I, I helped found an uh, addiction center in Beverly Hills called Alternatives Addiction, which does um, sort of moderation approaches and harm reduction approaches for many of these things like alcohol, like sugar, like sex, like food. Wow. Um, and so they have a very you know, empowering versus a, you know, your powerless kind of approach, which is often the case in, in uh, addiction work. Okay. Um, but yes, we work with all kinds of things. Essentially, if you have a brain, uh, we can work with it. And about a third That's of our clients here um, are peak performance folks that are people that don't have a brain. They're not really your, your, uh, <laughs> no, no people that have your target audience. People that have uh, <laughs> right, right No, but about a third of our clients are folks that have intact, typical, highly performing brains and want to get squeeze a little more resources out yeah. or folks that have normal brains that are aging and starting to slow down in their sixties and seventies want to sharpen them back up, get reaction times back on track, mm -hmm. improve body awareness, sleep, you know, other things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you can come to, to neurofeedback if you have a problem. You can also just get better if you don't. Like going to the gym versus going to a physical therapist, they can both improve you, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so folks are welcome to come, of course, to LA to see me. I have a, another office in St. Louis that we're opening up, a Peak Brain office in St. Louis. And we have um, dedicated technicians doing home-based work in Portland, Oregon, San Diego, Orange County, and we're adding a few more cities next year. Your website is peakbraininstitute.com. It is, yep. And... Um, 
but there's a lot of other people. There doing are. This there's in about the ten thousand people in the world. Okay. And um, uh, uh, the the techniques are proliferating, and they're not all I would consider legitimate anymore, unfortunately. Right. So a really good sort of threshold to determine if somebody's a decent evidence-based practitioner is: do they actually use QEEG assessments? To guide what they do, are I mean, they? Do they put one of those caps on your head and then look at the? Yeah. Are look they at the actually colors, looking look at, at your the... brain and doing a, an evidence-based assessment, a quantitative EEG, to figure out what might be true, and then tailoring their approach to that? If they're using anything where they just use one size fits all, or they have any bizarre, you know, well, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. If they're not assessing your brain and telling the process to you, you can do better with a right. neurofeedback practitioner. And right. I would say about two-thirds of us in the world use QEG, use typical band training, don't use anything sort of, you know, proprietary special sauce. None of the proprietary special sauce is worth it. Mm -hmm. um, and all the proprietary systems can do all the traditional stuff, and most practitioners do the traditional stuff, gotcha. which is band training, which is training up or down frequencies or connectivity between, between bands. Okay. Um, so... Look for QEEG as the threshold of, yeah, this person's probably le legit. Um, but there are lots of us, as you say, you know, around, around the world. I'm sure that any big city's got you know, 20 or 30. Um, LA probably has 100 because it was sort of discovered here. So there's right. more of us in, in LA than anywhere else. Um, but yeah, so uh, we also have a training program for folks that want to do it on their own, the sort of biohacker or mm -hmm. you know, self-hacker type. Uh, for that, people come out to one of our large offices for three days and do a QEEG and get trained on how to do neurofeedback. And then we send them home with um, a hardware kit. And for three months, we do chart review, check in, do tech support, and give you new things to try. I mean, I could train you in a couple of days to stick wires to your head, run software, but I couldn't tell you how to choose what to do. Right. Or what to right. do when you get a weird result or suboptimal results. Right. And so we sort of mandate a three-month supervision period where we're your, mm -hmm. where you're, you know, back pocket concierge neuroscientists mm -hmm. giving you new things to try. Now, that's a, that, that self-training program is great if you have moderate stuff or if you're working on kids, it's not a great way to train if you have major issues you're trying to get done for yourself. If you're really anxious, really ADHD, you're never going to get out of your own way enough to start the training process. But right. if you're moderate right. or you're doing peak performance goals or you have kids to work on, uh, self-facilitated training can be a really effective way to get the process done. Fascinating. All so, right. Well, this is great. I... Um Man, I can't believe how much I've learned this morning. <laughs> Great. So um, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really grateful to, to you and to your time. And, Absolutely. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what this does. Yeah, we'll, we'll, back, we'll so. hit you hard for a month and then we'll circle back around and do their map and see what's changed and see what you experience, which is really what matters. Right. Yeah, the mapping right. changing will be nice. Yeah. I'd, I'd be happy, happier if it changed than if it didn't. Yeah, but if I don't notice anything, then who... Then Exactly. Really so, matter. and what I really care about is someone's subjective experience of performance. Yes, that's what really matters here. So, um, I would guess within about two weeks of training, something would start to shift in a way that is not subtle. Okay. And you would go, "Oh yeah, that's what this stuff's doing." Okay, cool. Hmm. So we'll we'll circle back around after great. that and talk more about it. Sounds great. Great. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Andy. Bye. Oh, yeah. The Whole Life Challenge podcast is produced by our podcast team, Ernie Hurtado. Becca Borowski, and Cameron Banfield. You can find all our episodes as well as the links to anything we talked about during the episode, plus complete show notes at wholelifechallenge.com forward slash blog. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And if you like it, please remember to give us a favorable rating in iTunes and recommend it to your friends. I'm Andy Petronic. Thanks for listening.